everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. Uh, I go uh, solo on the host side again today as uh, my regular co-host, Rob Hunt, remains uh, skiing over uh, uh, on the continent and hopefully having a good time and staying healthy and safe. But he will be back next week uh, for our big show when uh, we will have Rob Bleatstein on, which we're really excited about and hope you will all be able to join us then. But for today, we've got an excellent show uh, we're very excited about some uh, fast-breaking cannabis news, which we're uh, going to get to in just a minute. And then we're joined uh, today by Ian Monat. He is the CEO and co-founder of Rhythm Sparkling Hemp Beverages. And uh, we're going to be looking forward to, to talking with him for a few minutes about that, about some of his musical background. And then uh, Ian has uh, said that he will stick around and listen to the uh Grateful Dead show we're going to feature, and with that, Dan, why don't you hit us with the opening uh, clip here, and uh, we'll take it from there. Dan. Uh, might as well. And our show today is from April 6, 1982 at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. We will be circling back around to that in a few minutes, but might as well is such a great tune. And 1982 was such a great year to see the dead. Spoiler alert, that was the year of my first show, but not for a few months later. But everything that we're going to uh, um, show off today from uh, from this show, all the clips that we're going to play are all tunes that were just big and soaring in 1982 for the Grateful Dead. Might as well was one. And this is just such a great show. It's a great recording. It's it's probably more cassette copies of this show floating around out there than almost anything else. You know, the Dead just sound fantastic. It's it's true 1982 form. And uh, some of the other stuff we're going to get to in the, for this show is really big. But might as well was being played all the time. Then it was a first set closer. Uh, for Jerry, it would often, you know, alternate nights with Deal when he was closing out the first set. Uh, we all love might as well. Somewhere in the late 80s, it kind of fell off the playlist a little bit, not so much in the 90s. Uh, but of course, it's the tale of their uh, famous train trip through Canada in 1970, I believe, with uh, Janis Joplin and uh, the band and uh, many, many others. And there's a movie that was made about it also. Uh, but it's a great tune. It's a it's a Garcia band original that he brought over to the dead, and uh, always a fun way to start the show. Uh, Dee never had such a good time as we do on this podcast, and uh, let's go forward with it and have some fun. So, on the marijuana side today, um, the biggest news out there is is something that we've all seen coming for a long time. We all keep talking about and then inevitably wind up going home disappointed. And that is that the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, or MORE, M-O-R-E, which is House Resolution 3617, and uh, has been out there for a while. Uh, We are finally ready to get the House House to vote on it, and uh, we are very excited about that. This will only be the second time that one of the Houses of Congress has voted on uh, taking marijuana off of the controlled substance list. Previously was in 2020. Uh, The last time the uh, House of Representatives voted and approved an earlier version of the Moore Act, 228 to 164, it was basically a party line vote. Uh, But of course, in 2020, when it got to the Senate, uh, it had no hope of getting through. Uh, As we've talked about, uh, the Senate has, has politicized itself to the point that even when Republicans and Democrats agree on the same thing. If the bill is proposed, uh, sponsored by a Democrat, the Republicans don't want it to go through because they don't want the Democrats to get the credit and vice versa. So the vote that's coming up really any day now, we're we're expecting it uh, to happen in the next few days here, uh, will certainly be historic if the House of Representatives again votes uh, to approve this act. and, And there's no reason to believe they won't, even if it's a party line vote. Uh, that should be sufficient for them to pass. 
But as we've seen with the House of Representatives on prior issues, uh, they tend to put politics aside for the most part when it comes to cannabis. And the Colorado guys vote yes, and the Oregon and Washington guys all vote yes. And the people from states that have programs where they see the the revenue that's being generated and, and the lack of the harm that everyone always talks about uh, wind up coming out and voting for it. So I think that there's a fairly comfortable feeling that this can get through the House of Representatives, uh, but it just begs the question of whether it's going to go anywhere uh, once it reaches the Senate. Given uh, everything else that's going on in the world right now, I find it hard to believe that any uh, senator up there is going to take too much time to push everything off to the side to raise a marijuana bill. Uh, and we can all see the Mitch McConnell ads coming back to haunt uh, Charles Schumacher forever while, you know, Ukrainians burned, Chuck Schumer baked and, you know, just wanted to get his marijuana approved. And that was more important to him than anything else, notwithstanding the fact, Mitch, that uh, a couple of weeks ago we had the clip from the Ukrainian refugee uh, who had gotten to the Ukrainian-Polish border and was getting ready to cross over and was being uh, interviewed um, by the uh, international news team that was there. And all he wanted to talk about was thank God for legal marijuana, 420, tell everyone back in the States that we're loving it. And uh, why not? You know, the war is hell, but smoke them if you got them. Um, so the MORE Act is there. It's coming along. We're going to watch this very, very carefully. We would certainly like to see something like this pass because it will, in fact, remove marijuana from the controlled substance list where it currently resides as a Schedule One controlled substance greatest hypocrisy in the history of the world we've talked about it before uh, but just go type up marijuana schedule one hypocrisy and settle in for a long night of very frustrating reading but basically this will allow states to set their own policies as they've done now but but to actually go ahead and, and make it legal right we, we've also talked about the fact that nowhere in the united states right now is marijuana legal not even in the states where they quote-unquote say it's legal they're not really making it legal what they're doing when they pass an adult use law or a medical patient law is they're carving out an exception in the existing law under these certain circumstances and assuming you follow these exact circumstances right by the dispensary drive it home in the packaging don't smoke it where your neighbors can see you blah 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 then you're not violating the law as far as they're concerned so this, on the other hand, would actually not just make it legal, but make it legal on the federal level, uh, where even today, uh, as we all know, it remains uh, uh, painfully illegal. And even though we can all freely go into our dispensaries and purchase what we want to purchase, uh, we all have to do it with an understanding and appreciation that any time the feds decide it's time for them to do something, they can come rushing into any state at any time uh, and start arresting everybody for violations of federal law. Um, the fact that no Democratic uh, administration has done it is significant, but not surprising. The fact that no Republican administration has done it is also significant and certainly a little bit more surprising. Uh, but for those of us that have had time to kind of really study the issues, I think we begin to get an understanding that just like people talk about marijuana being a third rail in terms of whoever wants to be the guy to support it and, and run that risk of, of the potential negative backlash, I think now it's the, the question is being flipped and who's going to be the guy who's going to be brave enough to go in and say we're reversing everything. The feds are coming to crash in. All you state programs are all going away. We're going back to the dark ages and no more marijuana. And quite frankly, there's certainly politicians in this country who have given the opportunity to do so uh, might very well do. So we can't take any of it for granted, even though we have adult use in medical and in Illinois and, and lots of other states. But we will keep our eye on that and, and report more as it comes along. On the other side, we have um, uh, a state that's now finally and for the first time really fully embracing its, its new marijuana status, and that's Las Vegas, um, right? Nevada, we all know, is basically Las Vegas. A few people like to go to Reno, but otherwise, you know, it's a lot of sand, and I don't mean to diss on the state of Nevada as a whole, but I don't know many people who go visiting Nevada and don't wind up in Las Vegas. And Las Vegas being Sin City or whatever you want to call it, where anything and everything can happen, uh, we can't escape the hypocrisy there that says you can go into the casinos and they'll push drinks down your throat all night. Uh, in some casinos, you can smoke cigarettes till you're hacking up more than you want to hack up. Uh, you still can't smoke marijuana. And not only can you not smoke it in the casinos, you can't smoke it in any hotel rooms in the city. And when you check in, uh, they have you sign a form that's not even just a no smoking cigarettes, but expressly points out marijuana and talks about fines ranging from 250 to $500 
if you smoke marijuana in your room. So this creates a huge problem, right? Because marijuana is trying to advertise itself to the can of tourist industry, all these people who get up and fly places because they can go there, have a good time, and buy their marijuana legally. So you can go to Las Vegas, you can have a good time, you can buy your marijuana legally, you just can't smoke it anywhere. You can't smoke it out on the street, that's illegal. You can't smoke it in your car, that's illegal. Um, and you can't take it back to your hotel and smoke it because if you do, you run the risk of getting fined 250 to $500. This doesn't mean that people don't do it. Uh, many do, but they certainly do it with a risk and uh, nobody likes to operate this way. Well, thank you, Pro Hospitality Group. Uh, this is a uh, hospitality uh, uh, entity uh, that currently owns a 420-friendly hotel in the uh, Phoenix area called the Clarendon Hotel and Spa. They have now gone and paid $11.9 million for the 64-room Artisan Hotel that's located just off of the Las Vegas Strip. They will make it. They will buy it, open it, and make it 420-friendly. And here's the the scary part: when Nevada regulations permit. So when will that be? Who knows? Uh, there's still a big pushback by the alcohol industry in Nevada, the, the gaming industry in Nevada, and a lot of other people who just don't want to see marijuana come in for any one of a number of reasons. Now, if marijuana were made legal, that might solve a lot of problems for a lot of these groups. Um, but nevertheless, they've got a good thing going in that town, and, and marijuana is the new kid on the block, and they're not going to make it easy. But you know, groups like Pro Hospitality Group that are willing to go in and spend their money, and if they've spent that kind of money to buy and, and renovate a hotel, uh, I'd like to believe that they're going to have the right lobbyists around and the right people to help them uh, as they go and they push uh, to try and uh, get uh, state regulations to allow them to actually open up a uh, a 420-friendly hotel uh, in on the Strip area in Las Vegas. Now, consumption lounges in Nevada have already been approved. They were approved back in 2021, and the first ones are expected to open sometime later this year. We don't have definite dates on that yet, but that will certainly be nice when you will have a public consumption lounge in Las Vegas, and it'll be interesting to see uh, if they put music or shows behind that or gambling or whatever, but uh, just the fact that you'll have that opportunity so you can finally go there, uh, buy the marijuana you want to get, and have a place to go use it. So, Look for that, and uh, just for comparison, the the the, the uh, hotel that uh, the spa that Pro Hospitality has opened in the Phoenix area, the Clarendon. Uh, this is a facility that actually features its own in-house uh, marijuana consumption lounge, and there are a certain number of rooms there that are designated and allowed to smoke marijuana. And for anyone who's ever traveled with marijuana and tried to sneak a few hits in the bathroom of your hotel room hoping that the vent will suck the smell out before the maid gets there. Um, you can appreciate the, uh, the uh, peace of mind of knowing that you can now uh, actually pay to be in a room where they know what you're going to do and they don't care. So that's enough on the marijuana side for the moment. There's always good stuff going on, but we have such a great uh, Grateful Dead show to talk about today and a wonderful guest that we're going to push that other stuff to the side and we're going to jump in right now and I am going to introduce you to our guest today, Ian Monat. As we said, Ian is the CEO and co-founder of Rhythm Sparkling Hemp Beverages. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the Deadhead Cannabis Show today. Hey, Larry. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. Um, you know, this show, uh, we, we, we live up to both ends of our, our title and, um, you know, on the cannabis side, uh, we're always looking for people who are coming up with innovations and making new inroads and helping to bring cannabis to the masses in new and exciting ways. Tell us a little bit about Rhythm. You know, give us a little bit of background, what it is, uh, how you guys got the idea and uh, what you're looking to do with it. Yeah, you actually um, introduced us more than you know. Uh, we, um, w uh, The Clarendon Hotel in Phoenix is, is one of our accounts and uh, we, we've actually participated in, in a number of uh, events uh, on their on their property, uh, and they're 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 a great partner of ours. Uh, we actually we're we're serving rhythm at their uh, New Year's Eve party uh, this past year. Um, but um, uh, but let me let me back up. Um, so I'm I'm Ian Monat, CEO and co-founder of Rhythm Sparkling Hemp Beverages. I'm uh, calling in from uh, the uh, San Francisco Bay Area today. Um, I'm uh, calling from the East Bay uh, in a city uh, called Walnut Creek near Oakland, and uh, I'm originally from from this area uh, also. And uh, so I guess three three 
tracks to know about me or one that I've uh, been kind of a, a lifelong musician. I took up playing electric bass uh, back in high school, which was, uh, we'll just say, a long time ago. And then, um, you know, after after college, I worked in, uh, I guess, call it like the, the corporate world for, uh, for you know, 15 years, um, mostly working for uh, consumer packaged goods companies, uh, worked for a few Fortune 500 companies, and since 2014, spent a lot of time in the beverage industry, uh, mostly wine and spirits. Uh, and then uh, the third track is like uh, an entrepreneurial streak. I've um, I've started uh, four companies. Rhythm Rhythm uh, is the fourth company, and um, and so it's always uh, the, the small business and growing brands from from the um, you know sketch on the back of a napkin to uh, to to hopefully you know uh, being a, a successful uh, uh, company is. Uh, is you know a passion of mine well that's excellent well some of the best ideas in the world came on the back of a cocktail napkin so you know that's always a great way to to, to get it started what's your background uh, my background so um from the from the working in the corporate world perspective um it's uh mostly marketing and sales and analytics um and um had you been involved in any cannabis-based products prior to rhythm not any cannabis-based products. Uh, so I was working in the wine and spirits industry in California in 2010 when uh, recreational legalization happened, and everybody in the industry was like completely enthralled with what was happening with cannabis and the thought of cannabis beverages, which hadn't really started yet in any meaningful way on the THC side or the CBD side. And so I wanted to participate in the cannabis, uh, space somehow. And so, um, I took my limited, uh, coding skills and created a cannabis jobs, uh, websites called Cali weed jobs and, um, launched it in, uh, I think it was mid 2018. Um, and it, uh, got some traction. I started going to cannabis trade shows like, um, uh, NCIA and, uh, the first, uh, wine and weed symposium and, um, uh, uh, MJ BizCon. And, um, and so it started getting some traction and it ended up, uh, being, uh, acquired by a cannabis, uh, digital marketing agency that, um, for the most part, does a lot of like uh, cannabis-based uh, programmatic advertising, um, and so they acquired the company, and I worked for them uh, for a while and grew grew the the, the site from uh, from like under the umbrella of that company. Um, then, um, shortly before the pandemic in 2020, um, they they had they started having some some troubles, and uh, and I, I left uh, the company at, at that point. And that's when I decided, you know, what's next? Um, I have to have to uh, try my hand at uh, a, a cannabis beverage um, because I, uh, uh, when I was out promoting the cannabis job site, I went to one particular trade show, which was called um, the Cannabis Drinks Expo in San Francisco. This was in July of 2019, and um, and it was, you know, it was it was super cool. There were lots of really early stage cannabis beverage brands on the THC side and the CBD side. Brands like Rebel Coast and uh, Proposition, and uh, I even ran into some people I knew from the alcohol industry who were kind of sniffing around, and um, and it just, it, you know, a lot of, some of the companies just had packaging, and they were like, well, we're going to launch soon, <laughs> but we wanted to, you know, be here, have a presence at the, at the trade show. And so, uh, so I realized, oh, you know, I could start now and still be early in the space. Sure. Absolutely. Did I see, I, I know you said you have a background in, in wine and, and alcohol. Do you have sommelier training in wine? I have a, um, uh, a, a certification that's called the WSET Level 2. Uh, and it's a, uh, basically equivalent to the sommelier Level 1. Uh, in terms of the composition of the test that's involved. Okay. So, I mean, you've already got like a, 
nose for this kind of thing from the alcohol side. Do you find that translates over for you very well on the cannabis side too? Uh, it does in terms of how we like the flavors of our beverages and how we, we want the consumer to experience our beverages. So we, we our goal is to is for you to when you try a, a rhythm beverage that has, you know, twenty five milligrams of of C B D that, that that you don't taste any cannabis. We're not trying to we're not trying to uh, lean into like say some sort of diesel aroma uh, or, or some, you know some terpene um, aroma. We're, we're trying we're, we do our best to, to mask it and then then deliver on like tre- trendy flavors like strawberry hibiscus and grapefruit rosemary that have uh, two, you know multiple layers to them and and, and have uh, have you know a really nice flavor and aroma um, and and hit on like sweet and savory and um uh floral and fruity uh and so so i think um in terms of uh, you know coming up with the flavors of the beverages um that the uh the the wine spirits training has definitely helped out fantastic have you found that you've come up with some flavors that are you know more popular than others do you have some best-selling flavors yeah our best-seller uh, is it's called Rhythm Energy, and it's a it's a CBD infused energy drink. Uh, it's a grapefruit rosemary flavor, and it delivers 25 milligrams of broad spectrum CBD, as well as 100 milligrams of uh, organic caffeine from green tea. And uh, so it's uh, you know it's, it's a it's a coffee replacement. It's uh, it's great in the morning. It's it's great uh, as like for that 2 p.m. slump. Uh, it's uh, it's caffeine without the jitters, without the coffee breath, and uh, and it, it's actually it works great uh, as like a like a mocktail or a cocktail mixer too. A lot of people make um, you know like palomas or uh, greyhounds with it. Now, as a as a guy with experience, did you ever ten bar? I did. Uh, I'm a, a certified mixologist. There's a lot of dust on that mixology certificate <laughs> uh, but uh, but I'm a certified mixologist as well and so I attended bar um, gosh it was a long time ago I used to like sling margaritas at a Mexican restaurant in uh, Southern California and I, I, I attended bar at a, uh, a golf club up, up in Northern California that uh, was like a like a heavy brunch situation lots of Bloody Marys and screwdrivers and whatnot and sure well, do you, do you get a chance to like you know try to come up with new flavors or new uh, you know concoctions to you know to mix the CBD in with other uh, you know flavors and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Formulating is is like one of my favorite parts of the job, uh, and so I, I, I work on our, our new products. Uh, we have a new product uh, coming out uh, this summer uh, that I don't want to. Um, uh, spill the beans too much about, but, uh, it, but it's got, it's got a, uh, it's got a real nice, uh, new flavor combination that's, uh, and it, it's, uh, it's going to be promoting relaxation and, uh, I think it's going to be a big hit. Wonderful. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for that too. And when it comes out, you'll let us know and we'll have you back on and you'll tell us all about that one. Do you, do you sell different drinks that have different amounts of CBD in them or is it always a consistent dosage? It's a it's a consistent dosage of CBD across the lineup of drinks, and we just recently refreshed the Rhythm brand, and there were two components to that refresh. One is the label on the outside. We uh, we have new art on our labels, and uh, we think it, it's much improved. Uh, our logo is bigger, and we lean into the function of the beverage um, as opposed to uh, the flavor. Uh, and then on the inside, we, we spent a lot of time reformulating um, the, uh, the flavor and the dose of CBD. So when we launched Rhythm back in 2020, uh, we had 15 milligrams of CBD in each can, and now we have 25. So we're, we're happy to deliver uh, 66% more CBD. Um, and at the same time, when we when we launched that, we uh, we actually dropped the price, uh, the shelf price, of the cans from uh, a five ninety nine um, price to the consumer to four ninety nine. So, uh, so we're, we're we're really happy with the offering that we have now. It's it's the 
the most potent uh, liquid that we've offered at the um, at the you know least expensive price. Okay, where can we buy it? Where is it sold? Uh, we have about 200 points of distribution across the U.S., mostly focused in Northern California, um, Arizona, New York, uh, and the Virgin Islands. But uh, but we ship to the lower 48 states, uh, and so you could go uh, to drinkrhythm.com and uh, place an order, and we'll uh, we'll ship it out usually the next day. Very nice. Now, with all those states that you named, do you actually have manufacturing facilities in all of those states, or do you just manufacture at one location? No, that's that's one of the benefits of CBD versus THC, is that with, uh, with CBD, you're not restricted to the state that you manufacture in. Uh, and so we have one manufacturing location in uh, Denver, and, uh, and from there, we can uh, distribute to uh, the other states. Well, that's great. I, you know, uh, that's the best part about the um, 2018 Farm Bill is it doesn't just make hemp and all of its constituent cannabinoids legal and take it off of the controlled substance schedule to the extent it was ever on there in the first place. But what it does is it also says that uh, no state can interfere with the interstate transportation and commerce of CBD-based products, right? States don't have to necessarily approve it for their state, but if you want to ship it across the country, as you point out, uh, you can absolutely do that, and that's been great for a lot of people. It's all very exciting. You just have to stay the heck out of Idaho because they haven't gotten the message, and even though they have, they pretend like they haven't heard it, and they play by their own rules. So even if you have to drive a few extra miles out of the way, uh, my experience teaches me, stay out of Idaho. Um, Someday they'll come around. But I've heard the same, yes. (laughs) Yeah, but just not yet. Now, does uh, are you guys have any idea of going into any other type of hemp-infused food product besides uh, drinks and beverages? Well, our, our expertise lies in beverages, and our supply chain distribution uh, is really beverage-focused. And so I think we'll continue to stay in our lane um, in, the, in the hemp beverage uh, you know, lane. And so, you know, we could get into different types of beverages that aren't necessarily ready to drink, like powders uh, is something we're interested in because, you know, shipping water across across the country uh, is not fun. Uh, <laughs> it's not, and it's not cheap. Uh, and so, so that's something we're looking at. Uh, and then there's, you know, there's different parts of the plant uh, that are in- interesting too. So like terpenes are not, uh, a part of rhythm, you know, sparkling waters, but uh, they could be a part of, you know, a line extension. Um, and then, um, you know, we, and we started to use some minor cannabinoids as well. Uh, in addition to CBD, we, uh, we have a, a rhythm sleep uh, beverage uh, that uh, uses uh, CBN in addition to CBD. Nice. Um, is your technology uh, that you use to manufacture these drinks such that if you wanted to, uh, you could also manufacture THC drinks and, and just and use marijuana instead of hemp? Yeah, yeah, we uh, we have a um, you know a deep partnership with our emulsion supplier uh, who is uh, Vertosa out of Oakland, California, um, and uh, their emulsions uh, work. Uh, virtually the same with uh, uh, with CBD or THC, and so um, we could certainly, uh, you know, pretty quickly swap swap in THC for the CBD if if we wanted to. Um, and so you know, it's something that is it's it's not a near term priority. I think there's a lot of uh, blue ocean for us on the CBD side. There's plenty of states where we don't have, uh, you know, accounts and distributors yet, and we see that all as opportunity for us. And so, um, so THC, you know, could be on, on the horizon, um, but uh, but not not in the near term. Something I want to throw out there that uh, uh, I thought I heard in our show notes, and if I'm wrong, then obviously you'll let me know. Did you work at Google for a while? I did, yeah. Um, and tell me about the the chef you met at, when you worked at Google. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a very special chef, not not just any chef. Uh, so yeah, so so I had a short stint at Google. This is a long time ago, back in like two thousand three, 
so if I had stayed there now, I, you know, I could have could, could buy my own, my own Island. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, so Google was one of the first, like, you know, Silicon Valley companies that offer like you know, f- free meal, like every meal is free. Um, you know, you, you get breakfast there, you get lunch there and you, you can get dinner there. Uh, and it, it, you know, it kept you on the campus. Right. So that was, that was the, the main goal is they want, they wanted you to never go home. Um, but, um, uh, but they had a, they had a huge cafeteria and, uh, it was, it wasn't like they just had prepackaged sandwiches out there. They had, you know, freshly made gourmet lunches, breakfast and lunches five days a week. And it was all led by, uh, chef Charlie, who was the Grateful Dead's, um, touring chef for, uh, many years, um, uh, during the, wow. um, uh, like I guess the, the majority of their touring life. So I bet he had a few good stories about them. <laughs> I, I got to meet him once. I didn't, we didn't like get to really like hang uh-huh. and like, you know, shoot, shoot the shit. Um, but uh, I got to shake his hand and, um, and, uh, and not only was, you know, was the food like, you know, healthy and eclectic and, uh, you could tell like, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it just had like, it was like food with like a cool vibe and, and cool ingredients. Uh, but then they, they, they piped in, uh, Grateful Dead, uh, music, um, uh, you know, in the cafeteria, uh, you know, every day. So they played Grateful Dead during lunch, uh, you know, five days a week. And so, so that was, that was cool. And that was, that was some of the most exposure to the Grateful Dead music that I had, uh, cause I would, you know, eat in the cafeteria every day and, you know, listen to Grateful Dead for like 30 minutes a day. So it was, it was cool. Well, let's talk about that for a minute because you are a musician. Tell us a little bit about the, uh, about your musical experience. I know you play electric bass. What kind of a band, what kind of a music, what kind of venues you playing in or were you playing in? Yeah. So, um, I played in, in many bands over, over the years, uh, in high school, it started with, you know, uh, garage bands covering Metallica and then uh, went off to to college. I studied uh, business and recording arts at uh, Chico State University up in uh, Northern California, and and so I was in like I guess we were uh, like a hip hop uh, rock band, uh, sort of you know like a <laughs> like a, uh, you know like like Limp Biscuit was sort of like a like a crossover between like hip hop and rock. That was a little bit like what we were, and we. You know, we we opened up for Jason Mraz and uh, one one of the uh, the the uh, guitar player of that band, um, or excuse me, the drummer of that band ended up being uh, kind of a famous musician. Uh, he plays bass now in uh, a band called Jamestown Revival out of Austin, um, who's big in like uh, kind of the Americana genre. Then. Um, I moved back after college, moved back to uh, the Bay Area and started playing with the San Francisco-based jam band. Um, that's where we played at um, at uh, Sweetwater. Up in Mill Valley. Up in Mill Valley. Uh, and, um, you know, we talked about a little bit about that before we hit uh, press play. And, um, you know, it was, it was a super cool uh, experience. Um, you know, you could... You could um, kind of feel the uh, the energy uh, when you're when you're in that venue. Well, you know that's that's an interesting point because uh, you know my buddies and I really make a point of trying to get around and and see shows in as many different you know historical venues as we can. You know, and now that the you get you know these you know Bob Weir traveling and touring on his own and Phil Lesh touring on his own, you know they finally gotten back to a size where uh they can you know they can go in and they can play places like the chicago theater here in chicago you know we go and we see them all the time but to like to go out to the capitol theater in port chester new york you know was was a a really cool experience and to see them at the Fillmore out in san francisco was a really cool experience and from the perspective of an audience member you know i always look at it as like wow I, you know could just imagine being in this room back in the day when the dead were the people you know when everybody was sitting there dancing but you know what is it like when you're the musician and you know you're up you're you're playing on the same stage that like you know whether it's the Grateful Dead or any band you know I mean you know musical giants have you know played on some of these stages before and now here's your band doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's um, you know I, I'm, we're doing the same thing, but uh, but it's a little different, and you know I'm sure there's 
there's a few more people in the audience when uh, when those guys were playing than, <laughs> than than when my old band was. Um, now, would you guys did you guys play Grateful Dead covers? We I think we covered uh, like one of the most you know like the more popular tunes um, like the uh, the Kate Casey Jones. Sure. Um, and so and then and it was kind of a loose version of, of Casey Jones. Um, when I when I when I, I moved to Phoenix shortly after that that time period and uh and went to grad school and when i was in phoenix i played uh in a reggae band called uh the upstrokes and uh, we played around for a few years and uh it was it was in that band where i um where i played more grateful dead song we played scarlet begonias we did um kind of kind of a reggae cover with scarlet begonias a little little reminiscent of the the sublime version of it and so, so I kind of remember uh, playing that uh, a lot more, um, and then uh, even f- uh, had another Grateful Dead touch point uh, in t- like 2018. I had moved back to Northern California at that time, and was working in the wine industry up in Napa Valley, and I um, s- uh, seeked out some uh, musicians to play with, and um, connected with a guy named uh, Jeff Stangy, uh, who plays the Hammond organ. And, um, and Jeff, uh, is, is, um, quite the, the deadhead and he actually was a Grateful Dead roadie and tech, uh, for, for many years. And, and so, uh, so we played his original music, uh, in the band and I could, you know, I could tell that a lot of it was, you know, greatly influenced by the Grateful Dead. Very cool. Okay. Well, excellent. That's, uh, look, that's just good fun to be able to get out there and do it, you know, and it's a... My mom always told me when I was young, you learn to play an instrument because when you're an adult, you'll be happy you did. And we'd always say, yes, yeah, see you later and run outside to play more baseball. And now, of course, we're adults and we wish we could. So it's great that a guy like you can. And, um, yeah, that's just fun to be able to go out and do that and, uh, you know, jam away and uh, take on a whole new appreciation for the music and everything like that. Well, thank you so much, um, Ian. This is all really fascinating stuff. And uh, I'm you know glad you're able to join us and, and go over all of this. Uh, I'm going to swing over for a minute here to uh, uh, our featured Grateful Dead show of the day. Please feel free to, to hang out and, you know, pipe in your your thoughts and comments as well as we go through this one. I don't know if this is a show you're familiar with or not, but if not, you should rush out and get it and listen to it a lot because as a bass player, I mean, I don't know if you're bass like, you know, how much you've listened to Phil Lesh or, you know, how much, you know, you listen to his style. But, you know, in, in the dead world, uh, you know, songs are judged by the number of, you know, Phil bombs that he drops throughout uh, throughout the tunes. And, you know, in, in the in the early 80s, uh, Phil was kind of finding a second wind and uh, he'd come out to some of these shows and he'd really, you know, dive into it. And it was just a, a year or two later when he walked himself back up to the microphone again and started singing and eventually got himself up to Box of Rain and all of that and a bunch of Dylan stuff that he plays. But um, he, he's great on all of this. And it's just, it's a fun show. There, uh, The show is at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. That's was the, for many years, the home of the uh, Philadelphia Flyers NHL team and the Philadelphia 76ers NBA team. And the Dead, I think their first show there, I want to say, was they were part of a, a touring ensemble in 1969 that wound up playing there uh, with, with part of a festival. And then they, they showed up again in the early 70s. But they actually wound up playing, and I was very surprised, they played at the Spectrum 53 times uh, between 69 and 95. I saw them there in the spring of 84. And for some reason that spring, they did not play at the Spectrum. They did their shows at the Philly Civic Center, which was also a very, very cool place. Uh, a little bit smaller and, um, you know, in that respect. But uh, I never got to see them at the Spectrum, and yet it seems like every show uh, that I listened to from there was great. But they played the Spectrum 53 times, which makes it the venue they played the most of any venue outside of the Bay Area, which I was surprised and immediately ran to my computer and Googled Grateful Dead at Madison Square Garden and it came in at 52. So that would, in fact, make the Spectrum at 53 uh, their clear-cut home away from home uh, when they get out to the East Coast. Um, And, you know, even at Madison's Garden, Square Garden, you know, they're up there with interesting company. I believe it's uh, Fish, Billy Joel, Elton John, and the Grateful Dead in that order of most shows at at Madison Square Garden all time. Uh, But for the Dead, it's the second most uh, played shows outside of the Bay Area after the Philly Spectrum. So 
really, really good stuff. It's a very interesting time, 1982, because not only, I think, are the dead kind of finding a, a new second win now with Brent Midland, who's, who's really gotten uh, uh, comfortable with the group, but they were really kind of playing at a unique part in their history where they didn't have the burden of any new album or new songs. In fact, 1981 was the first year in the band's history with no new jerry or bob original tune you know they might have dropped in a couple of uh, cover tunes along the way uh in 1981 uh but there was nothing they weren't playing anything new from jerry or bobby and uh by 1982 by the end of 1982 uh they were already debuting day job west la fadeaway throwing stones touch of gray um and in the uh, spring of 81 in the summer of 81 they released reckoning and dead set but those you know, really weren't new tunes at all. Those were just, uh, happened to be two fantastic live recordings, one all acoustic and one electric from their, their 20th anniversary or 15th anniversary runs at the Warfield in San Francisco and Radio City Music Hall in New York in the month of September and, and October in 1980. Um, but this was a great time, you know, for the dead. They, they, there was a lot of room for them to play the stuff they wanted to play. Uh, and they did a really, really good job of it. We heard them might as well. And now I'm going to uh, um, drop in uh, for our next uh, clip here, uh, give Dan a heads up so he can go get it ready. Uh, the highlight, I think, of this entire show um, is the Shakedown Street that opens the second set. It's a huge, gigantic Shakedown Street. Uh, Ian, you'll appreciate it. I, I can't remember if the part I pulled has all of the Phil bass bombs in there or not, but either way, it's got uh, it's got great sound. And it's it's a 13 minute version. And trying to pick out 45 seconds of 13 minutes is practically impossible. And when I was doing my notes, I had like every other minute written down as a launching off point when we could listen from. Uh, but I think that this part that we've got here really kind of encapsulates very nicely uh, where Jerry was going and, and how hot this shakedown street is. So, uh, Dan, if you could spin that for us, that would be great. Okay, so uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that version or not, Ian, but uh, you know the whole the whole tune uh, outside of the lyrics is just that same kind of you know real free flow. It's like improvisational dead at its best, um, and it's just really fun to listen to. Yeah, no, I hadn't heard that, uh, but it was a tasty jam for sure. It had uh, kind of like a little minor sound to it, and um, uh, no, it's uh, it was that was fun to hear. Uh, saw great choice. No, I, I didn't hear. I didn't hear a bass bomb though. <laughs> no, no, we didn't catch. There's a couple of others. In fact, if the very, very beginning of it is is so huge that I thought about uh, going with that. But I, I like to get into that part where you can really hear Jerry, you know, noodling around, you know, kind of in the middle of. That's the jam between the second and third uh, set of uh, of lyrics, and um, uh, you know. I've seen him play Shakedown Street a number of times, and I've seen some, you know, really, really big, explosive Shakedown Streets. But, uh, you know, this was just one night when they were on, and they were really hitting it, and um, it, it's so much fun to listen to. And, of course, you know, for those of us old enough to remember, you know, it, it came out in the late 1970s, so it was part of the whole movement that, at the time, at least, was dubbed Disco Dead. Um, and I always thought that that was kind of an unfair rap for Shakedown Street, because although it does kind of have a bump, bump, bump sound to it, which I suppose, you know, could be interpreted into disco if you really wanted to. It's it's just it's a it's a it's a Grateful Dead rock and roll classic, and it's it's one of those tunes that you know, in my opinion, really puts them up there on a pedestal. It's it's instantly recognizable, uh, one of their songs, and um, I just have this fantasy that someday at a Fish concert, you know, right in the middle of everything, Trey Anastasio is just going to break out into that bump, bump, <laughs> bump, and the whole crowd's going to go wild and. You know, it'll just be uh, it'll just be amazing. But uh, uh, you know, we'll see if that ever happens. But yeah, it it, it it's a lot of fun uh, to listen to. Did you guys ever play Shakedown Street? No, no, didn't didn't reach that far into the catalog. But uh, but you know, it's a cool tune for sure. 
Yeah, it is, and always fun to listen to. It's 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 great as a show opener. It's great as a second set opener. It just uh, and I've seen it as both. And uh, either way, it just really kind of grabs you right away and and throws you right into the middle of a of a fun concert and or if, you know gets your second set off on a uh, on a good note. Well, being nineteen eighty two, you know they come right out of this shakedown street without missing a beat. They jump into the. Uh, uh, Bob Weir magnum opus of Lost Sailor Saint of Circumstance, a a Bobby Twofer uh, that we got a lot in 82 and 83. Um, and it, they're, they're two really good tunes that were both off of uh, uh, Go to Heaven, I believe. You know, Bobby kind of took them, stuck them together one after the other, and the, the Lost Saint uh, jam became a real staple of... Uh, of seeing the dead at that time and they're both great songs and they both have you know really good sections that we can listen to uh but i just thought it would be fun to catch for a moment kind of the energy as they transition out of the lost sailor over into the saint of circumstance and uh, really kind of tune down from one and immediately ramp up on the other and dan if you've got that uh that next clip for us that would be great if you could run that now Okay, that's uh, uh, it's great. It's a lot of fun to listen to, and uh, you know they they just play that so well as as you know Bobby finishes up one, ramps into the other, and they really take off there. Yeah, that was cool. It was like a, like a like a slow driving uh, feel to it, um, but yet yet uplifting uh, with the vocals. Yeah, you know, and, and right at the very beginning, we got you know one of those classic Bobby yelps or howls or whatever. Uh, yeah, that he yeah. used to do that all the time, and you know, uh, on the one hand, it could it could definitely be a little bit annoying. On the other hand, hey, it was just Bobby being Bobby, and 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 you know, and we would all accept that and just move on. And in fact, we'll here we'll get to another Bob Weir moment here in a second because they they eventually come out of that scene of circumstance and hit it really hard uh, with a beautiful Terrapin station that we're not going to listen to, but uh, it's as good as any Terrapin we've heard before, and it's that same spirit and energy uh, that they're playing with all night. Uh, then we get a quick little uh, drums in space. And now when they come out of the space, um, this is actually really funny. And it, it, it had just about stopped by this point. Um, and this is one of the last shows, I think. I, I don't remember seeing it live myself. But when they would come back out on the stage after space uh, in uh, 1982 and early 1983, uh, the savvy deadheads knew to look at Bob Weir because if around his neck he had a whistle, like a referee's whistle, uh, that was a pretty good sign that they were going into trucking. And as they go into trucking, he pulls out that whistle and he just blasts it like a drum major. Tweet, tweet, da 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 However, you know, you would do it like at the beginning of a drum major march. And it's it's really almost ear-splitting. Um, and a lot of deadheads didn't like it just because it was so loud if he'd blast it right into the microphone. And the story is, is that somewhere after this show, a few months later, uh, Phil finally acting out the frustration of everybody reached over and grabbed the whistle out of Bob's hands and just tore the strap off his neck and that was the end of the whistle and uh, and they went on and would play many more great truckins after that but uh, if you're listening to this show and you come out of the space you'll hear Bobby blow that whistle and um, you know just be ready for it because it, it, it'll it'll come out faster than than you know it. Um, then what they would do sometimes is they they come out of the trucking and they drop into the other one but they only play the second verse. And um, while I love the first verse of the other one and I love the whole song, I always appreciated when they do that. It's like, well, we don't really know if we want to drop another tune in here or not, but yeah, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll drop half a tune in here. And uh, it, it's, it's just about three minutes long, this version of the other one. Um, but, but that's a great one too. And Ian, I'll just point out, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with the other one, but that's also another one that's famous for its fill bass bombs throughout the, you know, maybe not this version quite so much because they're playing a scaled down version of it, but go find, you know, any good other one from the early 1970s and turn up your bass and, you know, you'll be able to relate to that. And then into Morning Dew. And, and, and note the entire second set is just one long run. The Shakedown Street into the Lost Sailor, into the Saint of Circumstance, into the Terrapin, into the drums, into the space, right back out of the space, into the truck, in the Morning Dew, 
uh, the other one, Morning Dew, and then uh, they close it with Sugar Magnolia. So really, from the minute they walk out on stage in the second set and hit that first note of Shakedown, you have a continuous stream of live music until almost two hours later uh, when they finally you know, get to the end of Sugar Magnolia and walk off the stage. Uh, before the encore and I mean I don't know you know as a live musician if you can speak you know to the kind of endurance that you have to have to not just play that many songs but literally just roll from one right into the next without taking a breath or anything well no one's got the endurance like the dead or the fish or you know these bands that are known for their long concerts where um where it's like it's where it can be just them playing the whole time for the <laughs> three or four hours or whatnot, uh, without, without any other openers. Um, no, the, um, from an endurance perspective, like, uh, like staying calm and not tensing up is, uh, one of the big keys. Uh, and so, uh, the, mo- the minute you tense up and you're pressing your fingers like, like hard on- onto the fretboard and to the point where, you know, there's tension or your fingers are like turning white, that's that, that's the beginning of the of the end right there. Um, so you know, one uh, staying relaxed um, is is uh, is is the key to uh, to to having to lasting through a long set. Now, one of the great you know mysteries about the dead, and until we actually get one of them on the show and can ask him point blank, everybody has their own opinions. Is you know how much of these set lists were thought out in advance, you know, and how much were not. And of course, you know, for any dead had the the classic, you know, Grateful Dead lore we all want to believe is that they're just making it up on the spot as they go along. That's probably not entirely true, you know, and, and certainly now in the, in the newer versions of them, they have very well-published set lists that they, you know, show to everyone afterwards and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, kind of buying into that myth for a minute, it, I think this is you know, one of the other things that really certainly me and I assume a lot of other deadheads to them is, you know, we've talked about this with other guests is the way that the, the performers all kind of have this musical conversation on stage. So as they're getting to the end of a song by, you know, Jerry dropping a note or the drummer is hitting a certain beat, they all know right away what song they're going to go into, you know, and they can cycle around and, and actually get into that. You know, in your time playing live, you know, did you play enough with a group of guys where you were able to actually kind of get to that level of, you know, just knowing from their little musical cues where they were going and what they were thinking? Sometimes, yeah, you have to be, you know, playing with, with a group for a while before you can start to read each other's minds like that. Um, uh, but you know, sometimes it's, it's the crowd. Like, uh, if, if everybody's up dancing and, and you know, you have like a slow song coming up next, uh, maybe, you know, maybe you want to skip that one and keep everybody on the dance floor. <laughs> and so, uh, and so the, the, those are the kind of, you know, that's, that's what's happening in, in the minds of the musicians as they, you know, kind of figure out on the fly, you know, should they continue with the set list as planned or deviate from it? Well, that's great to hear. I saw Elvis Costello years ago at the uh, Hollywood Bowl, and it was a wonderful show, but he only played about 45 minutes, and he just came out and just boom, 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 buzzed through one song after the next, you know. He knew what he was doing. There was, you know, just sailed right through and you know i guess that works if you're elvis costello but you know i've always enjoyed you know that much more uh relaxed pace where you know they they get to the end of a tune and they kind of noodle their way out of it and kind of figure what they're going to go into and then noodle their way back into that and um you know here when they when they finally get to the morning due two-thirds of the way through the show it's just as 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 huge as some of the others that we actually uh my my co-host rob hunt and i had a uh, a feature a few weeks ago where we just focused on the song Morning Dew. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not or if you guys ever had a chance to play that, but that's just, you know, long, melodic, very beautiful. Uh, you know, Garcia kind of takes it and makes it his own with his voice, and he does a really great job with it here, and then they just kind of drop into Sugar Magnolia, which is seems to just be like, you know, the good old party tune for them, and it was always a great song to play at the end of the night because even though you were disappointed that the show was ending, you were having so much fun with Scar- uh, with uh Sugar Magnolia that you just didn't really care all that much, which I think was, you know, their way of helping you get out the door at the end of a night. But, um, you know, Sugar Magnolia is always a great way to, to you know, to wrap up a, a hot show. We always would like to have it at any time. But, boy, if you can get them to tag it at the end of a show like this, then, you know, you've really got the complete package, and that really, really makes it a lot of fun. And then, you know, with an encore, uh, again, more Bob Dylan influence for these guys. Uh, it's all over now, Baby Blue, which is the... Uh, the encore I heard at my first show a few months later in 82 it was getting played quite a lot not so much in in later years but 
every now and then they would drop it out there. But I always thought that that was a, of all their encores, you know, maybe that one and uh, Broke Down Palace with the Fare You Well, Fare You Well. You know, it's all over now. Baby Blue just seemed to be seemed to be a very good message. And the way Jerry sang it was also kind of good and kind of getting everybody mellowed down. Uh, we had a group of friends, uh, some of our friends out of New York, my good friend Larry Rader, who was a host on the show once, or a guest on the show with us once, and uh, they had aptly renamed the tune, It's All Over Now, Find Your Shoes, because the deadheads would all take their shoes off, throw them in a corner, and dance all night. But when you heard this tune, you knew that they were winding down, and you were going to have to find those shoes before somebody else found them and, and walked off in them uh, if you wanted to get it. So we're going to listen to a clip of that in just a minute on our way out. Um, but before we do that... Uh, just recap again and uh, make sure everybody has a chance to go out and find a way to listen to this 4682 Spectrum show uh, because it's just really so fantastic. Um, I want to say thank you again uh, to our very good host today, uh, guest Ian Monat um, from Rhythm Sparkling Hemp Beverages. Ian, thank you so much. And one more time, uh, please let our listeners know where they can find out more about you or your product. Sure. Um, the best way is to just go to the, our website, uh, drinkrhythm.com. Uh, rhythm can be a funny word to spell. It's uh, R-H-Y-T-H-M. Uh, and uh, so drinkrhythm.com. And uh, I'm going to set up a, uh, a 20% off uh, code for your listeners. So uh, we'll, call it, oh, cool. we'll call it Dead 20. How about that? Uh, That's beautiful. Yeah, so Dead 20 fans. Go for it. Dead, yeah, dead, dead 20 for 20% off uh, your first order at drinkrhythm.com. And then um, our Instagram, uh, we uh, we love our Instagram and we're at uh, drinkrhythm on Instagram. So it's a pretty pretty straightforward ways to, uh, to learn more or to get a hold of us. Okay. And as our veteran listeners know, but for our new listeners, if you check out the show notes online, uh, on our webpage, you can get all of this information, uh, all of the uh, the links that uh, Ian just mentioned, and you can get in and get that 20% discount and uh, tell all your friends and family about it, and let's get a lot of this stuff sold too. Uh, it's all you know, going for a good thing on the cannabis side, and always happy to help a guy like Ian out whenever we can. So again, Ian, thank you so much. Uh, when you get uh, these new products out, please let us know. We'd love to have you back on and get some updates from you and hear what's going on. Um, to the listeners, uh, next week Rob Hunt is back from his uh, his skiing travels, and we are very excited because our, our guest next week is going to be Rob Bleetstein. Uh, Rob, as you know, uh, is a, a member of the uh, team over at the uh, Sirius XM uh, Grateful Dead station. Uh, three times a day, Rob introduces uh, whatever concerts they're playing that day. Uh, he has great access to concerts. He's got great knowledge of them. And uh, he's going to help us break down one of his uh, f- uh, very favorite first shows, uh, April 1978, uh, from William & Mary College. So anyone who wants to do a little advanced homework and go listen to that show, that's fine. And if you do and you have the Dave's pick, I can't remember what number it was, 23 or 24 maybe, uh, you will note that on the liner notes, uh, Mr. Bleatstein actually drafted him. So uh, that's kind of cool when you get a guy who drafted the liner notes for a Grateful Dead release. And we will look forward to having uh, Rob on our show with uh, host Rob Hunt back. Uh, so we hope that you will all plan to join us again next week and tune in to listen to that show. Uh, otherwise, have a great week. Stay safe. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly. And enjoy the Grateful Dead doing Bob Dylan on your way out the door. Dan? you do and standing in the clothes that he once wore strike another match go start a new and it's all over now baby
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.